Well, hello again, Dragons. This is Kenny Rotter, your host of the Dumbbells and Dragons podcast. Welcome to episode 58. I am super excited about this episode for numerous reasons. Number one, our guest today is best-selling author of Console Wars, Blake J. Harris. If that name sounds familiar, it is because Console Wars is a huge, amazing novel about the history between Sega and Nintendo in the early 1990s, as well as Blake does a lot of work for uh, Paul Shear and Jason Matsuka's podcast, How Did This Get Made? And he is actually launching a spinoff podcast called How Did This Get Made? Origin Stories, so everyone should check that out. Links are provided on the show notes uh, Blake's an amazing guy, and I really wish him nothing but the best. He was so much fun to have have on the podcast, mostly because we're very close in age, have very similar stories growing up with video games, so it was really a blast to sit down with him. And the other big news, I've been kind of teasing this out uh, the past couple weeks, We have joined the Almost Better Network of Podcasts, so be sure that you can now also find us at almostbetter.net. Check us out there with a bunch of their other podcasts, including Almost Better Than Silence, uh, Almost Better Than Dragons, a D&D playcast, as well as the Erie Canal Theater, which is a great fictionalized, serialized podcast. Uh, Super excited to be involved with those guys, as hopefully we'll have more of them on the show. Back at episode 49, we had host of Almost Better Than Silence, Doug Coleman, on. So yeah, really looking forward to growing the podcast and seeing what comes from this. And you can help with that by sharing this podcast with one or two people that you think would be into it, or one or two people that you don't think would be into it. Why not? Give it a shot. And then while you're at it, if you could rate and review this podcast on iTunes, I'd very much appreciate it. I think this is the longest intro I've ever recorded for the podcast, so on that note, enjoy the conversation, y'all. Talk to you on the next one. Bye. In the basement, rolling dice, rolling dice. When we play, we do it right. Candles flicker, fighting dragons in my mind, in my mind. Just for kicks. DM says you're gonna die. Roll a D6. Roll a D6. Roll a D6. Hey, dragons. Welcome back to the Dumbbells and Dragons podcast. I am your host, Kenny Rotter. And today, I am joined by best-selling author, Blake J. Harris. He's also host of a new podcast called... How Did This Get Made Origins, which I'm also very excited for when that comes out. Blake, how are you, my friend? I am excellent. Thanks for having me on. Um, it's, it's great to finally meet you. <laughs> I agree. You know, we did have some hiccups in the very beginning, but you and I persevered, and here we are. And first, you wrote probably one of my favorite books that I've read in the last couple years, Console Wars. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and then a little bit about what console wars is about. Sure. Thanks, man. Um, so I wrote that book console wars. It's a behind the scenes, character driven business story about the battle between Sega and Nintendo from the early nineties. And, uh, you know, I grew up during that time. So it was a joy for me to write and kind of learn about the adult world and, um, the people responsible for my childhood. That was my first book. I'm 34 years old, so I grew up in the late 80s and early 90s, and after college, I knew I wanted to write. I worked as a commodity trader for seven and a half years, trading sugar, soybeans, and coffee for Brazilian clients while I was trying to get my writing career off the ground, and i pleased to say that it is off the ground. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I wrote Council Wars. I'm working on a new book, and I'm psyched to chat about whatever you want. Awesome, man. Now, you... you... Tried your hand at writing, obviously before console wars. How how did that go? Would you would did you write anything that we would know? No, so mostly just stuff that my mom would know if she even remembers. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, a, a kind of a, a quick bio of myself. I grew up in uh, 
Westchester, New York. I, I actually grew up in the town of Chappaqua, where the Clinton family lived. And I guess prior to console wars, my biggest claim to fame, my biggest claim to fame was that my uh, uh, ex girlfriend, my ex sixth grade girlfriend, uh, ran over the Clinton's dog. Um, <gasps> so that, that, yeah, so that was probably what I was best known for being the ex boyfriend of someone from twenty years ago. Um, yeah, you know, by the time I went to college, I went to college in DC. Um, at Georgetown, and I, I, I realized at some point along the way that I really, 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 really wanted to be a writer. Um, but by the time I graduated, I had no idea how to go about being such a thing. You know, it's a, it's a unique career path uh, in that there's not so much of a path, but a lot of different avenues that all often don't lead anywhere. But anyway, so I guess so for the most part, I focused on screenwriting and filmmaking. A few years after college, when I was trading commodities and, and living at my grandma's, I had saved up a bunch of money and my plan was to go to film school. But I ended up spending all of that money to make a feature length film about competitive rock, paper, scissors, a mockumentary called The Flying Scissors. So perhaps some people, some of your listeners might know that movie. Probably not. But but that was like what took up a lot of my time. And uh, and I did a lot of screenwriting. I, I was mildly successful in the sense that I was able to get representation, but but certainly not successful in the sense that anything I ever wrote got made, nor did I ever really make any money doing it. What were some of the obstacles you faced when in those early days of screenwriting? And I mean, you were successful enough to get representation, which is, I think, a huge step for a lot of people. But what were some other obstacles that you faced? I mean, it's a great question. And, and it kind of goes to something that I'm sure we'll talk about later. But in terms of what you're writing... Um, just, just the content, you know, I, I think there's a temptation to write something that you think will sell. That's the whole point is, is to kind of like break in with a big splashy spec script sale. Um, and so maybe you're drawn more towards writing something that more closely resembles the movies that are being made or the scripts that are selling as opposed to projects that are maybe your own passion. Uh, and perhaps that's changed in the past few years, you know, with the blacklist, uh, focusing on unproduced scripts that are usually a little bit more outside the box. I, mean, I focus mostly on comedy and I wrote very broad scripts. Um, you know, one of them was called Man Scouts and it was about a bunch of dudes in their thirties and forties who start the adult equivalent of like a Boy Scouts troop. That's it's very <laughs> much like old school. But for me, kind of the big breaking point and what led me to console wars was I wrote a script with my writing partner, Jonah Tulis, um, who I'll probably talk about with console wars since we're direct, in the documentary together. Um, so Jonah and I wrote the script called The Sordid Tales of an Evil Tyrannical Ex-Dictator. And it was this story about a Ricky Gervais-like dictator of a upscale, highfalutin, small European country uh, like Liechtenstein or something, uh, <laughs> like a fictional country, who gets overthrown and ends up coming to the United States and basically being in the witness protection program and working at the DMV in New Jersey until his old life catches up with him and he goes on the run. And it was actually, it was a very, uh, it was a very good script. It's, you know, I'm proud of it. It's the best thing we wrote. Then about a week before we were going to try to sell it, um, Sasha Baron Cohen announced that he was doing a movie called The Dictator. Sasha Baron Cohen from Borat and The Ali Show. And he didn't have a script or anything, but the fact that he was doing this kind of rendered our project moot just because it was also about a dictator you know that, that that to me was like a pretty good sign of what the film industry was all about and it's certainly not a bad thing i mean it's a, making a movie is such a risk that of course a, a project by a, a well-established talented guy with a track record is you know much more valuable than some script by two jokers living in new york that, that was important to me because it was a heartbreaker but it also um kind of made me realize that those kinds of situations are Maybe not likely to occur, but they always can occur. And so if I'm going to spend so much time working on something, I really want it to be something that I care deeply about and, and you know, would be able to persist from those kinds of heartbreaks and just feel glad I spent the time researching and writing something. And that, that was kind of what led me to writing Console Wars, obviously. That was a book, but but still, just the, the notion of focusing exclusively on things that I'm super passionate about, uh, regardless of maybe what their commercial value is at the time. Okay. So where are you in your life when you get the idea for console wars? Are you still working as the commodities trader? Um, is screenwriting Absolutely. paying the bills? Uh, no, screenwriting is definitely not paying the bills. So I must have been 28, uh, maybe like six years ago. Uh, I'm definitely working as a commodity trader. So I'm, uh, I'm waking up 
very early every morning and going to Rockefeller Center, trade sugar and coffee and soybeans on the ice exchange after hours. I, I mean, I remember it was a couple of things that kind of led me to writing Council Wars. The first was my brother. He's a, he's a terrible gift giver, or he was, um, but he had now had a job out of college and said he wanted to get me a really good gift this year for Christmas. And I said, you know, I, I don't really like gifts. You know, I, I'm not a, don't worry, you don't have to get me anything. He said, no, 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 what's the best gift you ever got? And I thought about it. I thought, you know, it probably was the uh, the NES that he and I got in the late 80s or the Sega Genesis that we got in what must have been 1992 or 93. And he's like, all right, I'll get you a Sega Genesis. Um, and that was kind of a cute, quirky, fun idea. And so he gets me the Sega Genesis. It shows up. And uh, and, I, and I kind of expected it would be like like fun in, in a nostalgic way um but you know not necessarily like the games themselves would be that fun i hadn't played video games for a while but when i played i found that um the joy was still there um that the games from 20 years ago were still as fun to me as they were back then and all of that got me thinking what was going on behind the scenes you know now as an adult my favorite books to read are behind the scenes business stories like Disney War, The Smartest Guys in the Room, anything by Michael Lewis or Ben Mesrich. And so I remember going to a Barnes & Noble on 86th Street in Manhattan. It's like a big, giant Barnes & Noble, two stories. And I was looking for the video game history section. I was looking near the film history section, the music history section. Um, and I was kind of surprised to find that there was no such section. And then I asked the woman at the information booth, uh, you know, where the video game history section was. And she literally laughed at me. And then I just asked for one of the books on like Sega or Nintendo or anything that kind of explained the his the history or the business of video games. And and there was nothing. There was not even anything like that they offered to order me, which they always seemed odd that they would order a book that you could just order yourself. Um, and so so that was like all very odd to me. You know, I I didn't know a ton about the video game industry, but I knew it was it was like a pretty big deal. Um, and especially to those of us who grew up in the 80s and 90s there was like a special place in our hearts for sega and nintendo and even those older than us for atari and, and television and ColecoVision. so i was just shocked uh the only book they had in the entire store related to video games were walkthrough guides um so the, the fact that they didn't have anything for like a mainstream audience or just any like historical reference book was was odd to me but you know it wasn't like i left barnes and nobles that day saying like aha i am going to fill this alleged demand um, you know, it wasn't as clear cut as that, but, but that kind of, uh, pushed me in this direction. And I did, um, end up ordering a few books online that were either out of print or harder to find some great ones like, uh, David Chef's book game over, which is very much like console wars, but about Nintendo and about the time before Sega and Nintendo fought, you know, that was kind of the only book that was, that was more like the style I was looking for, uh, like a business driven story. Uh, there's a great history of video games book by Steve. Even Kent, that's more like an encyclopedia and kind of like an oral history. Uh, that's called the Ultimate History of Video Games, and and still, but even even in those books that were out there, it always kind of just seemed to gloss over this fact that like Nintendo was so 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 dominant in a way that's even hard to understand. Where they had ninety five plus percent of the market, where they were video games, and then all of a sudden Sega came in and things changed, and then Sony came in and things changed again. And I was like, well, what what changed? Like, how did Sega? How did somebody take down Nintendo or how did someone compete with Nintendo? So that's what I was really curious about. You know, I love a good underdog story and I was really wondering what had gone on. It seemed like there was like such a fascinating time with the creation of Sonic and the release of Super Nintendo and then uh, all sorts of crazy Sega things like Sega CD and 32X and then Sega Saturn um, and Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter. Just, you know, all these words that evoke so many memories in myself and I believe in others. And and so kind of after doing research and just kind of like outlining a bit of the, the events that happened during that time without even really understanding why they happened or who made them happen, the only thing I could think of why there were not books on the subject was that, that it must have just been really boring behind the scenes. Like, you know, that as much as I kind of imagined working at a video game company uh, back then to be like working at Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, that, you know, that these executives would have been like, nope. It was just like, you know, punching a time card, like any other job, blah, blah, blah. But then after starting to speak with them, uh, I realized that was not at all the case, that for most of these people, this was the best years of their life, the best job of their lives, and they had so many fun anecdotes that I was super energized to write the book, and that's kind of how it all started to come together. And one of the things that I loved best about your book was it does show 
this in-depth kind of personal relationships between all the people involved. And it's just really incredibly well done. And, you know, I was a Nintendo kid growing up, so that's where that's where my loyalties always, <laughs> always lied. But I was a... Uh, I was a marketing major, and so some of my, in, in undergrad, and so some of my favorite parts of Console Wars are when Sony, or not, I'm sorry, not Sony, Sega is doing kind of just, they're discussing their marketing techniques and how they're going to get into the Walmarts and all these other retail shops. It was really incredibly well done. Now, how did you get started talking to these people? Because it's like if you're approaching, you know, the president of Sega and just like, <laughs> hey, I'm thinking about writing a book. You know, how did how did that, how did you start that ball rolling? Well, it was difficult. Uh, it was difficult in so many ways that are, you know, they were especially difficult for me because this was the first book I had written. And, and it was, you know, it wasn't just like me being a first time author. I had never really written articles for websites. You know, my background wasn't film. So, you know, I didn't have a journalistic background, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So that was all, you know, new territory for me. And also, you know, I just didn't even have something as simple as like a list of people who I wanted to speak with. I didn't know who the people were that worked for these companies outside of maybe the president of Sega or Nintendo or, or even just like the EVPs. I didn't know who I was even looking to speak with. So that was like kind of tough. And to kind of even just map out in my mind or on the page, like how decisions were made, like who would I even want to speak with or what would be the best way to try to get somebody to speak with me by speaking with former people that they had worked with. Amazingly, one of the biggest resources earlier on was one that I had made a lot of fun of and still to this day kind of make fun of. But, you know, LinkedIn, like what I thought was like, oh, Facebook for work. Who needs that? Um, <laughs> but, you know, I typed in Sega or Nintendo. I could just kind of uh, look up the results and see who worked at Sega or Nintendo during the times I was looking for, um, you know, ideally like 1990 to 96, but pretty much like any time between like 1985 and 2000, you know, kind of to your point about the fact that like, I'm just kind of reaching out to them. I, I don't, I can't say, Hey, I'm the author of these articles or this book. Um, I'm just like some dude who's like, I've written a lot of failed screenplays. Um, you know, it wasn't the most <laughs> um, <laughs> enticing offer. Um, but so, you know, so it was a numbers game. Like I probably heard back from only 10% of the people and that's fine. You know, you, you have to be used to hearing no or more likely just hearing nothing um, to succeed in almost any business, I think, or any endeavor. So, you know, I started off that way, reaching out to, I don't know, 150 people, speak, getting like 15 of them to speak with me. And that that was really helpful in in two things. One, getting me excited, like just hearing little snippets and anecdotes to show me like, all right, this is kind of more like the Willy Wonka type of story. Like there are these gems behind the scenes there um, that maybe I don't have yet, but but they're out there. And two, it just helped bring me into that world so that I could start to kind of in my mind, wrap my mind around like what this was, who I did want to speak with, how decisions were made at these companies and, and just take me back to that time and place. So that was... uh really helpful for me. And and also kind of what you were saying, like about you having your marketing background and this book really speaking to you. I think that at the end of the day, this really is, um, this book is kind of like a love letter to marketing, or at least that's more than anything else. It's a story about marketing. And I didn't realize that going in. That's something that potentially I could have, you know, if you think about what these companies actually are, they're not necessarily the ones um, who themselves are making the games, you know, they they are um, hiring people to make games and purchasing different titles and distributing content um, from their parent company in Japan. But so, you know, kind of hammering down um, what this story was, that there was a lot of marketing aspects to it. And, and for me, just broadening my horizons on what marketing is, I think that just very naively, having not really thought about it, I, I just assume like, oh, marketing is like TV commercials or, it's, or you know, it's, marketing is advertising and that, that's annoying. Like that's the stuff that gets in the way of what I want to enjoy um, and not really realizing that marketing is storytelling. Marketing is uh, creating the origin story for your brand and creating the vision for your brand and creating the way you want consumers to feel when they hear about and see and play your content and how that all fit into the partnerships that Sega started to build and how they were able to use that underdog story and narrative and, and their vision for video games to uh, really change what video games were. So, um, you know, it was an eye-opening experience for me. When you, when you were growing up, 
were you partial to Nintendo or Sega? Did you have a did you draw a party line, as it were? Absolutely, I drew a party line, and that um, that I'm glad you asked because that is kind of also something that, in a way, I feel like explains why I was interested in the story. So, you know, in the late '80s, my brother and I got the 8-bit Nintendo Entertainment System. It was like, you know, like I said, one of the greatest gifts we ever got. And and so, of course, we were like Team Nintendo. But, you know, at the time, there was no other team, really, unless you had a master system, which was weird. Um, <laughs> but so, like, I, and, and I mentioned this because I remember, I remember in what must have been, like, uh, 1991, Super Nintendo comes out in September of 1991. And, and so I guess heading into that Christmas Hanukkah season, uh, I remember my brother and I going to speak with my father and kind of putting together the childhood equivalent of like a PowerPoint presentation of like, here's why we should get a Super Nintendo for Christmas because we, you know, we loved our, our previous Nintendo. Of course, we would want the Super Nintendo. And my dad, who's a great father and always, you know, tended to accommodate like, you know, he would find a way to help us get what we wanted. Maybe they wouldn't buy it for us, but they would try to help us find lawn mowing job you know he was the yeah. kind of guy who would try to make something work but but for some reason he was very opposed to this idea of like us getting a super nintendo and he said we're not going to get you a super nintendo because nintendo is just going to come out with a super duper nintendo and then a super super duper nintendo and like you're you're always going to want it and so you know you could say my father did predict the next 20 years of gaming but <laughs> i think that or so like his point was symptomatic of how a lot of parents felt around that time in video games when this was all kind of new. And, and, and it really spoke to the fact that, Ninten- that the Super Nintendo was not backwardly compatible. You know, looking back on that as an adult and kind of around the time when I'm getting into the story and asking myself, like, yeah, why did I end up being a Sega kid and what happened to all back then? Um, like, really, it was somebody in a boardroom or a group of people in a boardroom deciding that they didn't want to spend the extra money for the Super Nintendo to be backwardly compatible and that that business decision is like what swayed me my parents away from letting us be a nintendo family and somehow a sega genesis was acceptable but somehow wasn't part of that um so really it was this like seemingly innocuous business decision that turned my family from a nintendo family to a sega family and and to your point like you know battle lines were drawn it wasn't like i just uh meandered into being a sega kid like i was full force uh back then most people were depending on what you had like that was your identity it really felt very much like your uh, political party and whether you joined because you had ideological reasons or just because you fell into it you kind of fought to the death for it because that's who you were and and, and interestingly enough i even remember kind of feeling this way at the time and it's not you know, it's certainly not in a way I could have articulated back then. But I remember having this feeling uh, related to the marketing. You know, I probably didn't even know what the word marketing meant. But but like kind of this feeling of like, I'm a Sega kid. I'm, I'm you know, I'm cool. Uh, you know, Sega does with Nintendo. Welcome to the next level. All those like uh, quick cut MTV like ads. But I kind of remember feeling like, even though I was that, and that was like my supposed identity, that like I didn't deserve that. Like I, I wasn't really deep down a Sega kid. I wasn't really like a cool kid. I was much more of like a Mario kid, like slowly plodding around and just kind of like exploring things. But so I just remember feeling this like strange dissonance with the marketing, where it was, it was working effectively. It was making me feel like I was something different. But 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 part of me was like, no, that's not who I am. Um, so on some level, you know, I felt somewhat conscious of what was going on, but but certainly not. In a way, I could have ever articulated back then. No, I I'm absolutely with you on that, and I remember uh, I'm a hardcore Nintendo guy. What was your What was your background? How'd you end up on Team Nintendo? Uh, well, I I always had the. Uh, I remember when I was like six years old, I would have I had the NES, and I would run home from school every day to play it. And my mom was always like, "No, you need to drink a glass of milk before you can play video games." So I would just like chug just a full glass of milk, which that talent subsequently helped me with beer in college. Uh, (laughs) But then I remember saving up all my money and going to Best Buy. And I had a choice between the Super Nintendo or the Sega Genesis. And they had demos Mm -hmm. available of both. And I'm sitting there as a kid and I'm trying to play the Genesis and they had the six buttons on the front, the A, B, and C, and I think the X, Y, Z buttons. And for some reason, I just could not 
get comfortable with the grip and moving my thumb all the way to the right to hit those buttons. So then I demoed the Super Nintendo and I was like, oh, this is a lot more comfortable. And so I emptied my bank account at like 10 years old and <laughs> bought myself a Super Nintendo. Uh, awesome. And that was it. It was, it was merely comfort of the controller for me. And did you ever regret it or did you ever feel like like you were jealous of what the Sega kids had? Or did you have a friend that had a Sega that you would be able to play those games? Like, What was your relationship like with Sega after that? I, you know, I didn't really care because I think even at that early age, I was a completionist. And so <laughs> I, I liked to explore every aspect of a world. Like I enjoyed finding all the secrets in like Super Mario, going mm-hmm. to the secret levels in Super Mario World and all that other good stuff. Whereas with Sonic, I thought the point was just to get through the level as fast as you can. And so right. I knew I was missing a lot of stuff. I didn't really want to take the time to go back and search for it because I was like, I, I just wanted to do the down A or down B spin all the time. <laughs> and yep. I, and so I just didn't get to explore the world. And I was like, oh, well, this is kind of, <laughs> sadly, I was like, okay, well, this is kind of a one trick pony. I'm going to go back to Mario because now he's got a cool dinosaur. And that's... That all I, makes sense. Yeah. And I am a hardcore Mario fanatic. Like, I love my platformers. Uh, the closest thing that has ever tried to take me away from Nintendo has been Crash Bandicoot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and even that, I was like, no, I want my little fat plumber. <laughs> yep. I, I don't want to give away the ending of Console Wars, but it, it doesn't continue through what's going on today with Nintendo, Sony, and Microsoft. Do you have any sure. yeah, do you have any plans to write a continuation so we can kind of see what's going on with Nintendo and how they're dealing with Microsoft and Sony? Um, no plans, but definitely an interest or curiosity, which is ultimately what created console wars. And so whether that means something I would write or something I would just love to read, you know, I hope that such a story gets written. So I guess in terms of without giving away the end of console wars, though a lot of people can probably guess it who lived through it. <laughs> um, you know, like, like a big, a big part of my objective, given how I kind of fell into the story was to write a book that would have a place in that Barnes and Noble. And, and that would have, you know, I, throughout writing my book, I always wanted to write a story that my grandma could enjoy. I wanted to tell this video game story in a way that someone like my grandma, who doesn't know anything about video games, except that I used to beg her to buy them for me back then, you know, would enjoy, which was to make it a human story and to make it seemingly not about video games, to make it about this underdog scrappy team trying to do something with these big ideas. So to me, as it felt like kind of a natural end point to go from um, just really the lifespan of the Genesis and, and the career uh, of Tom Kalinske, who is the president of Sega of America from 1990 to 96. Uh, so, so, you know, those parameters felt like the right ones for console wars. Uh, and it would be the same thing too, kind of with, uh, with, with what comes next with, with a sequel, per, you know, per se, like, you know, I, I would, I would love to know what was going on at, Nintendo and Sony and Microsoft uh, back then and even now, but my entry point in would always want to be like a human story um, or some sort of specific mission or endeavor. Um, you know, like, like a good one, and and it has already been written is uh, like about like Xbox. You know, Microsoft getting into the home console business. You know, now we take it for granted, but that was kind of a big, expensive move. Um, and Dean Takahashi from VentureBeat wrote a good book about that called Opening the Xbox. Um, so, you know, kind of like those kinds of entry points, that, that's what interests me. But again, you know, I'd love for someone else to write such a book or at some point to write one myself. My, my curiosity has not been quenched when it comes to retro video games and, and certainly not video games as a whole. My new book touches a lot on the video game industry. So, so that's kind of a way for me to get my fix. Um, that's a great segue. Let's talk a little bit about the new book, which uh, we were talking a little bit earlier. It's about virtual reality. It is, yeah. And so what kind of focus are you taking on virtual reality? And I got to say, I kind of already know your views on VR. We differ wildly. <laughs> How so? I don't 
necessarily like VR. I don't think it's... It can be a good thing, but I think we as humans tend to overdo it on the good things. And so... (laughs) (laughs) Are you not a fan of decadence, Kenny? Come on. No, uh, no, I just... Let me tell you a little bit about you know how I how I got into the story and and why I've gladly spent the past two years uh, you know immersed in this world and speaking with these people and and have been loving it. So so coming off of console wars, I remember having a conversation with my manager and saying to him that it was really sad I would never write a book as good as console wars. And he said like, oh no no you know you'll keep getting better at writing and you'll keep finding stories to tell. And I said yeah no I know I just never thought I would find a story. Um, that had such a, you know, such a big cultural influence, um, and that really had such an interesting convergence of technology and entertainment and personality and video games and, and, you know, basically all the, this, this kind of like all these different categories. Um, and then I tried, uh, the Oculus DK1 headset at E3 in, uh, 2014. And then I realized I was wrong. Um, you know, I, I thought that that what I was looking at was definitely the future, and uh, whether or not that proves to be correct, you know, there's certainly reason to believe otherwise, like what you're describing. Um, but you know, I think that that reaction I felt is is pretty similar to a lot of people, um, where you don't even necessarily know what this is that you're feeling and what you're seeing, but you're like, this is this is the future. This is this is the next big thing, um, and. And so, you know, again, it was kind of about finding like human story and figuring out what the bigger business and cultural story is. And that's what I've been working on. It's also worth mentioning that I think a big part of what um, swayed me towards virtual reality and, and also swayed a lot of the people that I've spoken with at these companies towards virtual reality um, is that book Ready Player One by Ernie Klein, by, uh, by Ernest Klein that came out in 2011, I think. You know, it's it's a science fiction book that flashes forward to, I think, 2044. And it's a world in which most people live or spend a lot of their time in this interconnected virtual reality universe that's kind of like the Internet. But but it's like a VR version of the Internet um, to, to describe yes. it very loosely and badly. So that to me is kind of like when you're talking about, you know, maybe some skepticism about the future. I I, I can see some skepticism with gaming or or feeling like kind of uh, niche in certain ways. But but socially, I feel like there's so much value to this. Um, you know, the idea of spending, you know, instead of having a having a, a phone call with my mom every Sunday, but to actually spend like 15 minutes with her in a room, which could even be like a room, like our old family house, you know, you could basically create whatever room you want. Um, and, and having that present, that kind of presence and interaction seems much more meaningful to me than just a phone call. And so it's really the social aspect. And, uh, you know, Facebook's acquisition of Oculus for basically $3 billion in 2014 was also a big part of what drove my interest towards this and being about more than gaming and just this cultural shift. I, I totally agree with you. And I think that uh, virtual reality, I mean, the, the first generation we have is incredible. Um, if you can call what we're dealing with now first generation, because I remember <laughs> VR when I was like 12 years old when you had this giant helmet on and you were walking through a giant 8-bit pixelated world. But the current first gen, I just think it's only going to get better. And I, I do like the potential aspects. Okay, if a child is home... Uh, sick from school, they can put this on and they can actually be in their classroom and and right. interact with people. People who may not have the means or the time or the energy to go to Egypt and see the pyramids or to go to Paris and see the Louvre. This right. gives them that opportunity. And this is just me talking. I think that there is something in, something intrinsic about physically being there, not just tricking your brain into being there, even if the virtual reality and the reality is indistinguishable. Sure. I mean, that, I, that's kind of something I'm curious to see uh, when we go on, um, you know, especially as these headsets get better, the resolution gets higher. Um, and, and wondering, like, what is the value to the, you know, real world versus a virtual simulation? Though, you know, if you ask someone like Elon Musk, 
you might say that we're already in a virtual simulation of some kind. Um, <laughs> but, but but it will be interesting. Like you know, like what are those seemingly like unnoticeable artifacts or or the nuances that make something feel real? I don't know. These are all questions that will that I'm looking forward to exploring um, as we get there. But but part of what really fascinates me about this story, uh, whether it succeeds or not, though obviously I'm someone that's kind of bullish on it, is is like this idea of, of if you and I are both talking about it now, like this is the first generation and, you know, five years from now we'll have a better idea or 10 years from now it'll be so much better. But but this idea of like inevitability, like it's not necessarily inevitable. And and to get to that five years from now or the 10 years from now, the companies doing it are essentially just going to keep losing money. I mean, none of these companies are making money at this point because it's such a small install base. It's such an expensive R&D project. So what is driving them to do this? Like why – they don't have to do that. It's not like there really is this inevitability that that's what's going to happen. And so kind of looking at it again from like a business perspective and a marketing of this technology um, and a product development perspective, like what is it that is creating this sense of inevitability, um, which becomes like self-perpetuating? So that's been really fascinating to me and something I didn't necessarily realize early on because we all kind of think like in the back of our minds, yeah, this is the future. But again – as you pointed out, in the 90s, we put on these stupid, clunky headsets and thought this was the future. And those two, like, you know, as much as as bad as those VR experiences were in the 90s, they weren't like that much worse than if you look back at the blocky polygon graphics of the Sega Saturn or the PlayStation, like they oh, were yeah. somewhat comp. So, you know, it's not like they were that much worse than the best video games at the time, like, like someone could have kept investing millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions and billions to make to keep that trajectory going. They didn't because it was not profitable then. Um, and nor is VR very profitable now, but people are still making the investment because of the hopes that we'll get to, you know, that like, you know, quote unquote, 10 years from now and, and have something really magical. You know, as technology advances, we're going to get better and better VR for cheaper and cheaper. Hopefully if people keep making these investments, I just, I go at it with cautious optimism. Sure. I mean, who knows where it will go. And, uh, you know, I, I, I believe in it and I'd like to see it, but, but even if for some reason VR doesn't happen or doesn't happen in the way that I'd like to see it happen, you know, I still think that once again, it's a very interesting story, you know, essentially starting off with this uh, 19-year-old kid, Palmer Lucky, who's working on virtual reality at a time when no one else in the world is really working on virtual reality because all anyone thinks about with virtual reality um, is those failed projects from the 90s and even from decades before that. But, you know, he's kind of too young to have lived through that, and uh, he's really into retro consoles. And so he builds a prototype called the Oculus Rift, and then through a uh, you know series of fortuitous events uh, involving... Uh, the legendary game maker John Carmack and getting paired up uh, with uh, Brendan Aribe, who's uh, you know a really savvy businessman and also a good marketing mind, uh, who'd done middleware, you know, basically launching this company Oculus and in a short time uh, creating this like grassroots uh, excitement for virtual reality and then selling the company to Facebook and now seeing a company like Facebook who's never made hardware before or never successfully made hardware before. They did have an attempt with the phone um, and seeing how they've approached it and how other companies, other big Silicon Valley companies like Google and Microsoft and Sony also, though not, you know, not Silicon Valley company, um, you know, seeing how they've responded and, and how this ecosystem is being built. It's very fascinating. I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to this book. Maybe, maybe it'll change my views on, on VR. Yeah. Well, I think that kind of, um, where we seem to be headed at this point in time, you know, kind of like a little bit of a revised vision that's a little bit different than Ready Player One. And, uh, you know, this is not like trade secrets or anything. This is like, you know, you, you could see this um, described as like the end of the 10-year roadmap that Mark Zuckerberg described at the Facebook F8 conference is essentially um, a pair of glasses, you know, like eyeglasses that does uh, AR and VR, that does augmented reality and virtual reality. And so maybe that's a little bit less, you know, maybe that, that uh, overcomes whatever inherent qualms you might just be feeling because it's, you know, it's not necessarily trying to trick your brain so much. Like you're very conscious of the fact that you're in the real world. And part of what 
these glasses do is the computer vision and the mapping of the environment around you and then creating virtual environments. You know, we'll see where it goes, but it's definitely interesting. And I think cautiously optimistic is the precise amount of optimism to have at this point in time. You know, anybody, I'm sure that when you're pitching a, a VC, you need to tell them with certainty that this is absolutely the future. But I think that anybody that really believes this is there's some certain trajectory is kidding themselves. You know, it, it, you know, it feels a lot, you know, just cap- trying to capture this excitement in this story and this possibility and the, you know, all these investments and what feels like, you know, these lottery ticket like companies of what will succeed and fail does feel similar to me of what I've read and heard about, um, you know, the, the PC revolution of the late seventies and early eighties and, and the internet in the nineties. And, uh, you know, this being more of like the hardware, you know, being hardware based, it, it, the parallels to the computer revolution seem more, uh, appropriate. And, and, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I, I always kind of likened this book to writing about Apple in the late seventies and certainly Apple and Steve Jobs and what they did for personal computing was a big deal and, uh, an incredible story. But at the same time, you know, I, I think we would call them a success, but at the same time, like, you know, that was in the late seventies, early eighties, and my family didn't own a PC until the mid nineties, and that's pretty common. Like most, the, the mainstream audience, the average person, didn't really uh, have a co- computer in their home until years after that. I don't think it will be the same thing here. I think technology progresses a lot quicker, but but you know, still that same idea of like that crossover to a mainstream audience is is really hard and, and not necessarily something that will happen anytime soon. I have a I have a quick little philosophical question for you, I guess. So sure. we have we have internet 1.0 when the internet first kind of became mainstream, where people would go and they would seek out content. We would mm-hmm. we would go to web pages and we would get the news or whatever. Now I feel we're at internet 2.0 where. We, the end user, is creating the content. We're creating tweets. We're creating Facebook posts, podcasts, uh, video blogs, all this other stuff. So what is Internet 3.0? Oh, that's a really good question. I don't know. I mean, I don't see any way to reverse or I don't see any need to reverse the empowerment and the autonomy that us, the end users, have had, you know, whether it's uh, broadcasting yourself on YouTube or whatever. Um, well, okay. I mean, listen, I have a lot of opinions on this, but, but specific to your question, I think internet 3.0 and it's something that I don't particularly like, you know, if, if we go from, you know, <laughs> if we go from, you know, internet 1.0 is us receiving and consuming content and us internet 2.0 in your opinion is us producing and sharing content that I think internet 3.0 is we are the content and it's just like a live stream of us at all times and like a literal reality show, not like a produced reality show, but you know, okay. um, almost like the Truman you know, show I, or even more specifically like that movie that's coming out later this month, the circle. Uh, I, I haven't seen the movie, just a trailer, but that book uh, by Dave Eggers, the circle, um, I recommend any of your listeners um, who are interested in the future of technology might want to read that. Um, that's a kind of uh, scary or maybe not scary to some people, dystopian <laughs> view of the future. Um, like that was a book I read a few years ago and it was the first time I read a like quote unquote dystopian book and thought like, wow, this could really happen. And, and just the kind of things it, it's scary if you're someone who, who likes the idea of privacy, though I think we all know that, you know, the illusion, the, to some degree, privacy is illusion with all the data out there. But like, you know, one example from that book that kind of struck me was this idea of like implanting chips into everybody. And, you know, when I, I remember when I grew up, this idea of like putting chips in people was like a big brother thing that we were all scared of. But as it's posed in the book by this like Google like company, um, you know, the, the idea comes about from an engineer whose brother, whose younger brother was kidnapped and, law, you know, I guess never returned. So it was like, what if we could stop kidnapping forever? And yeah, you could stop kidnapping forever, probably, um, you know, if you give up your privacy completely. Um, and so just those kinds of issues. Um, and, and I also wonder, you know, I, I obviously have expressed uh, caution about this and some fears about what that Internet 3.0 might look like. But I do wonder if I'm like the... Uh, 
old man saying, get off my lawn. I, I do think that it does seem like teenagers and, and younger people today have less of a problem with uh, losing that shred or illusion of privacy. So maybe they have no problem broadcasting their lives uh, 24-7. I, you know, it's I've, I've felt that way. <laughs> I felt very similar a lot of the time where <laughs> I'm just like, I can't believe what people share these days, how people are just so lackadaisical with like privacy settings. Um, and then people are surprised that they get fired over a Facebook post. Right. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's going to be very interesting. And I actually will include, uh, links to all the references you've made with the books by Michael Lewis and then Dave Eggers. So people can just head to the show notes if they want right, to, cool. uh, look into any of that for themselves. So, I let's let's segue to a little bit lighter of a topic <laughs> than cool. than us just surrendering ourselves to our social media overlords. <laughs> um, so, what was your favorite type of video game growing up? Well, kind of like I alluded to earlier, with me feeling like I don't deserve to be a Sega kid, and how you described Sonic the Hedgehog. Um, I am much more of like a, a Mario platformer guy deep down like i love i guess there's a, a completionist in me but i also just love exploring and doing things slowly and you know i like i guess save for that like da, 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 noise when you're running out of time in mario there's not really that much urgency to how quickly you move so so nintendo platformers and you know the mario games uh zelda those games were certainly like my speed. Um, and then at the same time, I was also a really, really big sports fan. Um, and I had a brother who I've mentioned a few times. I still have a brother. Um, but so, you know, we, everything like, you know, if a game was two players and it was a sports game, that was great. So like NBA jam and NHL 94, those, those were all things that were like perfect for us. So it was really the sports games and then the like kind of iconic Nintendo games. And Sega was fantastic for sports games. So that was wonderful for us oh yeah dude nba nba jam uh no pun intended was my jam (laughs) yeah (laughs) who'd you play as um i always did the bill clinton cheat code oh nice so i mean or uh the benny the bull cheat code and i would play as chicago bulls i think i don't think that one that's great oh yeah you got to be the little bull mascot it was great i loved it um And then the Bill Clinton code was just hilarious. I I, I appreciate the uh, the developers getting a little political with their video game systems or their <laughs> video games. Do you have, like you are so busy? You're writing a book. You're uh, finishing up the documentary. Do you have time to game at all now? Uh, not really at this point in time. You know, uh, you also mentioned at the top of the show that. Uh, I'm launching a podcast or really like for the past two years, I've just been working with Paul Shear and his how did this get made podcast to provide um, interviews behind the scenes with the filmmakers featured on the show or the, the who make the movies feature on that show. And we've kind of spun that off into a podcast of its own. Um, so no, I mean, not at the moment, really the book, the, the writing the book is what takes out most of my time. And that's what really prevents me from gaming at the moment. Yeah. But um, but I'm super psyched to play the Switch. You know, I, I, I think the Wii U was a huge marketing failure, but it itself was like a pretty or, – or the games on it at least were awesome. I love that. I was, a ha- I was a proud Wii U owner, so I'm psyched for the Switch. Um, and I also – I've only played a little bit of uh, PSVR, and I, you know, I know Sony's doing a great job with VR, so I'm really psyched to get in on that and and i do you know for quote-unquote research i do um play my uh my oculus rift and my htc5 so i at least you know it's more of just uh just seeing what's out there than getting immersed in these things for long lengths of time but you know I, i'm looking forward to diving back in okay real quick with the switch are yeah. you going to lick the game cartridge <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna make out with it. I'm gonna blow on it and lick it. No, uh, um, <laughs> I guess we'll have to see uh, see well, how their relationship blooms. But you know, well, it's pretty wild to me. That Nintendo's still doing cartridges after all this time. That's that's kind of strange. Well, no, but I, I I don't know if you heard they they are putting the cartridges taste bitter to prevent little kids from putting them in their mouths. 
Did not know that. Um, I thought you were just asking for the sake no. of you assume that's the type of guy who'd want to make out with my cartridge. No, um, <laughs> I didn't know that. That's really funny. That's really yeah. funny, though. It's, it's, they put a bittering agent on all the cartridges. So, yes, wow. these, are, these are the first cartridges that have a specific flavor. Hmm. I mean, another way to prevent that would have just been doing digital downloads. It's <laughs> good for them for figuring out the bittering agent methodology. <laughs> Alright, um, I've been slightly irritated with them as of late, mostly because when the NES Classic was released, they either, and you couldn't find it anywhere, and secondhand it was going for like, it was a $60 system going for like 300 to 500 bucks online. Right. So they either didn't adequately predict demand, or... They purposely withheld supply to drive up demand. Either way, well, I'm a little worried. You know, it, it could certainly be that they uh, failed to properly estimate demand or that they did it intentionally. And uh, I have no inside information to confirm the latter, but I'd be shocked if it was the former. You know, Nintendo, from the very beginning of their, uh, you know, bringing consoles and video games to the U.S., that has always been their strategy. Uh, I'm sure that in their minds back in the mid-80s, they justified it by saying that, you know, oversaturation was what killed Atari and the other video game companies um, from earlier in the decade. But at some point along the way, when you keep doing it with the NES, the Super NES, the Wii, Amiibos, with everything... Um, you do start to, one, develop a reputation, and two, create a negative reaction with your with your consumers. And, and I think Nintendo consumers in particular, there's a lot of affection amongst us. You know, we uh, a lot of us have fond memories of playing Nintendo when we were younger, and their IP is just so incredible that you have these strong relationships with Nintendo. And so, you know, I would love to see that change on their end a little bit. I guess with the Switch, it's been a little bit better um, you know, they definitely do seem to play games with their supply uh, and, and do try to drive up demand in that style. And I don't know that that really is an effective tool in 2017. Uh, you know, when we have the transparency of the Internet and can find out that it's not just our little store in our town that doesn't have it, but it's actually, you know, a global strategy to not deliver these things um, in adequate supply. But we'll see. I I would totally agree. I just I think that worked in the late 80s, early 90s, maybe even as far as the late 90s, but these days it's like all it does is kind of sour me on it sours the relationship that I have with them. Right. I mean, that's been one of the knocks against Nintendo that I think is kind of a fair knock. And and something that they've changed a little bit, even in the time since I started, you know, I guess like the five years ago since I started really focusing on them. Um, you know, again, my focus has always really been like the 80s and 90s, not Nintendo of today. But, um, you know, they, they do things like uh, force YouTube users to take down videos that use as their IP and they're really protective with their IP in a way that, you know, you can kind of understand, but, you know, with, with fan-made games and with people posting, playing their games, like, you know, it's, it's it only usually comes from a place of affection, not people trying to um, sully their IP or trying to necessarily, like, profit for the sake of profit. So, um, you know, I think Nintendo has always been pretty um, – taken this hardline stance, and uh, maybe that's been effective for them. I, I, I feel like that's not really – the best approach um, in 2017 to take with your fan base, especially when you have such a, a strong, devoted fan base. But uh, but we'll see. I've taken up almost an hour of your time. Let's talk a little bit real quick about um, how did this get made? Origins, uh, specifically, where can people find it and what kind of stuff can they expect from it? Because I know the episode... Uh, you did with, I want to say it was the director of Surf Ninjas. <laughs> yeah, it was the, the writer of Surf Ninjas. It was pretty oh, wild. Yeah. yeah. Was, that was such an amazing story and such an intriguing episode. I loved it. And I can't wait. I can't wait to get more of the origin stories. Uh, for almost two years now, I've been working with Paul Shear on the How Did This Get Made podcast. And uh, that started off, I'll just describe very succinctly as, you know, 
Paul Shear and Jason Manzukis and June Diane Raphael. And th- those first two, you probably know from the TV show, The League, if you watch The League, that was Andre Nozick and Rafi. Um, you know, they've had this podcast on for almost six years uh, where they talk about bad movies and it's called How Did This Get Made? And it's essentially like, um, you know, how the hell did these movies that are terrible get made, whether it's Speed 2, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, whatever, like a lot of, there's a lot of 80s and 90s movies in there. And, and I, I got in touch with Paul a couple of years ago to say, I love the show. I think it's the funniest podcast out there, but you guys rarely actually answer the question of how did this get made? Like who, who is greenlighting Top Dog with Chuck Norris starring alongside a dog or Theodore Rex, you know, with a Whoopi Goldberg <laughs> buddy cop vehicle with a, with a talking dinosaur. Um, I was, I was like, you know, I love behind the scenes business type stories. Like, you know, I would happily volunteer to start looking into that or, you know, you guys should hire someone else to do that. Uh, but I would love to read about that. And he was like, yeah, that's a great idea. So for almost two years, I've been providing interviews with the filmmakers who make the movies featured on their show. So we've done movies like Kazam and, uh, you know, and again, it's like always super fascinating because nobody sets out to make a bad movie. Of course not. Um, you know, or at least nobody sets out to make like an unprofitable movie. <laughs> and so <laughs> these are essentially like the, uh, you know, most embarrassing creative moments of a lot of these people's lives and trying to figure out like what went wrong. You know, there's always almost inevitably going to be an interesting story <laughs> um, when things go wrong with so much at stake. So I've been interviewing the filmmakers. Some of the, the stories we've gotten have been so incredible that we've released them as special episodes on the how did this get made podcast feed and you know the how it's gonna be podcast you can find anywhere on itunes soundcloud stitcher everything you know last year we released a, a wonderful interview with mel brooks the legendary mel brooks talking about his uh, movie solar babies which i had never heard of huge huge bomb and that that's to date my favorite interview ever i mean it starts off with mel brooks and he's saying like blake i'm gonna tell you the the greatest story never told. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, Mel Brooks is a showman. And I'm sure it'll be a good story. But he really did kind of tell me like, the greatest story I've never heard about how he almost killed himself and this like how this terrible movie really influenced his career ultimately in such a positive way. So we released a few special episodes with Mel Brooks, Brian Taylor, the director of Gamer, and also the Crank movies. And then most recently uh, with Dan Gordon, the writer of Surf Ninjas, and he wrote that movie, The Hurricane, with uh, Denzel Washington. He wrote Pastor 57, though the part that we released and what you listen to is this crazy story about this movie that he made in the late 70s with the mob and how he essentially found out that he, he slowly realized he was part of a money laundering scheme. Um, so all, you know, all those episodes are you know, available for free on the How Does This Get Made stream, and, and every two weeks they have a new episode you know, doing their new movie. Um, and then in addition to that, we also have launched a spinoff called How Did This Get Made Origin Stories, which is available on Stitcher Premium. And it's just additional interviews with people like, so for Surf Ninjas, it's interviews with the stars of the movie, Ernie Reyes Jr. and Nick Cowan, who played the kids. We also interviewed, you know, we put up the Mel Brooks interview as well. There's, you know, there's just a bunch of uh, other, if, if you like these behind the scenes interviews with people, they are up there. And so we launched that a few weeks ago and we're just going to keep adding to that. And meanwhile, uh, all along the way, I've always kind of the primary location for all these stories has been on the website slash film. Um, we've got about 50 of these pieces now. And, uh, you know, it's either oral histories or just long form interviews with the writers and directors and talking about their career and where this movie fits into their career. I'm I'm really looking forward to more. And of course, I will include links to all this, all these great things on the show notes page once this goes live. Excellent. Where can people connect with you uh, social media wise and where can they find, I'm sure you're going to say they can find console wars anywhere books are sold because now it's in that video game section. (laughs) Yeah. I think there's still not a section, but, uh, but it (laughs) is available wherever books are sold. Yeah. You know, I'm very active on Twitter. Uh, My handle is uh, at Blake J Harris NYC. So just my full name without any spaces or, punctuation and uh nyc i also have a website blakejharris.com which is there just to really put up excerpts from console wars and also post uh, links to all the how did this get made posts and uh, yeah console wars is available wherever books are sold and the audiobook too people really really like the audiobook 
Um, the guy who did the narration, Fred Berman, did an incredible job. He did like different voices for every character. And since the movie, you know, it was, I'm uh, sorry, since the book was written kind of like a literary movie in a way to get like my grandma to, to appreciate it, you know, it does feel like it's really nice to have it read to you and you feel like you're there. Uh, so Fred does a great job and it's on Audible. A lot of people have enjoyed it that way. I actually own both a hardcover, not a hardcover, but a, a hard copy of the book. And I did listen to it in audio form. Um, and oh, it was, awesome. yeah, it was very, very well done. I, I usually use overdrive, which is connected to your public library. Okay. Have you ever heard of this app? It's amazing. No, that's great. I mean, console Wars <laughs> is available in like a lot of libraries too. So that's awesome. If you can get it for free that way. <laughs> I just love this story and I don't care whether you borrow it from a friend, uh, whether you're getting it from your library. I just want people to read this story because it's an incredible tale that I really am honestly just lucky to have gotten to be the one to tell it. So however you get it, just just read it or check it out. Absolutely. And I I wholeheartedly um, support that. I've actually mentioned it to the other bloggers on the Dumbbells and Dragons uh, blog, and then pretty much any of my friends, I'm like, we grew up playing video games together. Read this book. You'll love it. Last question, man. What parting advice do you have for everyone out there listening to the podcast? One piece of advice. I don't know. I mean, it's got to be writing related. That's like my area of quote unquote expertise. I guess two things. Um, you know, when, when you think about writing as like as a profession, as something that not even like to make money on, like if even if you're just thinking about my failed screenwriting days, but basically just the opportunity to work with people or whether it's like starting to work with Paul Shear and also or with Seth Rogen on the movie stuff. If you just kind of think about the relationship based aspect to writing or to doing any creative endeavor where you're going to want to work with other people, whether it's content creating partners or distributors or from a marketing perspective, you know, the one, the best piece of advice I think I ever got was from an old manager of mine whose advice essentially boiled down to you want to make people's lives easier. Like that, you know, whether literally or just figuratively, um, everybody in Hollywood has a list of like the people you want to work with who make your lives easier and the people who are difficult to work with. And maybe, you know, being difficult to work with doesn't mean that you're, you're, you're a diva necessarily, but, but it just, it just helps to make people's lives easier too. Um, and, and I say this, um, you know, with, in terms of writing as well with someone like me or other people who are doing, uh, you know, nonfiction journalism, you know, you're, you're asking, and you, you know this too, like, you know, you're asking for an hour of someone's time. You're asking for, something of someone else be conscious of that fact and try to make it easier try to work around their schedule try to ask you know some people prefer interviews by email some people prefer to have questions in advance some people prefer just casual conversations basically just trying to always make it as easy as you can to the extent that you could still accomplish what you want um and what you need to accomplish you know but just trying to always be on that make things easier list has been something that i try to abide by and then in terms of the content itself you know, I think that we all have heard before to write what you know. Um, I think that that is, um, it's a great starting point. You know, in my own personal career, what has served me well is to write what you want to know, to write what you're super curious about, to um, kind of take away that notion of like, what is, what is going to sell? What, what, what will publishers or agents or producers be looking for? And think about what you actually care about. And that's what you want to tell. You know, I think one of the, one of the kind of like no duh things with writing a book, but that I hadn't really thought about is it's such a long process. You know, like if you're going to be spending two, three years or even six months or a year on a topic, uh, writing about a certain group of people or about a company or about a game, it really helps if you're very interested in that game. It also helps too if those people are not assholes um, and, and if you actually <laughs> like and admire them. Um, no, that's not necessarily a prerequisite. But like, write what you want to know. The, 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 like, there's a lot of things I could say about my console wars experience that I learned, and a lot of things that were revelatory to me by virtue of it being my first book and just by virtue of it being a unique story. But but one of my favorite things 
to reflect on is that if, you know the book did take me about three years to to research and write with the first two years primarily just being research um and and there really was not a single day during the three years where i thought like oh i gotta work on this thing today like every day i woke up or whenever i started to think about it i was really excited about it there was always something new out there i really loved talking with all these people um at sega or nintendo or sony you know so trying to find topics that you're super curious about and, and will help you through that, you know, the, the long process is, is some good advice that I would recommend. Excellent. That's awesome. And I definitely think that is something that everyone out there can take to heart and apply, even if it's not about writing per se, your, your comment about making people's lives easier um, I think that can help everybody in every profession and then work is going to go by a lot smoother for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, even just with you interviewing me on the podcast, you know, I had to cancel one time cause I was sick and you were very understanding and I assume that you were sincere in that understanding, but even if you weren't, it, it's <laughs> probably, it's probably better for you to be, to be kind about it because I, I was stoked for this interview and you know, that's it's better to go into these things excited and everyone, you know, on the same page than to um, let personal emotions disrupt these things. You know, we all kind of want the same thing to create good content and to tell fun stories. So oh, yeah. don't and, let petty and, stuff get away. No, absolutely. And honestly, it's like if you are, if you make somebody's life more difficult, they're probably going to try to make your life more difficult, even if it's no, unintentional. That's a much better way of saying what I was trying to say. Like, you know, I came into this site because you've been so great to me and I want to give you and your listeners what you're looking for. And why would anybody, you know, but, but, but it happens so often the other way where some small thing pushes a relationship off balance and it just kind of escalates from there. No. Don't be an asshole. A lot of times, that's what it comes down to. Uh, whether it's because you're genuinely not an asshole or just because it's best for everyone. So that's my advice. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And I think that's how we're going to leave it. The best parting advice is just don't be an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Blake, thank you so much for giving me some of your time today. I really appreciate it. I really hope you and I can keep in touch, especially as the new book gets closer and closer to coming out. I would just, honestly, I would love to just sit down and talk, talk VR and philosophy with you at some point. Awesome. That also sounds like a really cool book, Virtual Reality and Philosophy. (laughs) All right, right, for sure. I'm down. Everybody out there listening, I hope you enjoyed this one. I sure did. And we will catch you on the next one. Workout Nerd Out. Thank you for listening to the Dumbbells and Dragons podcast. Please leave us a review on iTunes as well as a rating. We would definitely appreciate it. And while you're at it, follow us on all social media at Dumbbells Dragon. That includes Pinterest, Tumblr, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Periscope, and Snapchat. Until next time, workout nerd out.